Now, this is week number two in our study called Stuck. And uh, we all are recognizing there are just times in our lives when we feel stuck. We said it this way last week, stuck happens. And so sometimes we feel stuck like in our career. Or we might feel stuck in a relationship. We might feel stuck with some bad habits. We can feel stuck in some of our life goals, like trying to lose weight. We can feel stuck emotionally, unable to move forward in love and grief and happiness. We can even get stuck spiritually. Like I know a lot of people right now who feel like their spiritual life is stalled. So there's a lot of ways we can feel stuck. I don't know if you've followed this story in the news, but Adnan Syed, stuck in prison. Uh, About 20 years ago, uh, he was accused of a crime, assaulting and murdering his girlfriend. But from the very beginning, he said, man, I'm innocent. So all throughout the investigation, through the trial, through the sentencing, and then going to prison, he just committed to the story like, I'm innocent. Back in 2014, there was a podcaster who picked up this story and began to investigate the evidence and found that there was some reason to question it. And then over time, some of the people that are in authority started looking at what the podcaster had come up with and decided that there was enough evidence, new evidence, to vacate his sentence. And now he is released from prison and is free after 20 years Stuck in prison. Stuck. Now, Syed's case has a unique similarity to something we're going to talk about in our study this morning. So, from Scripture, we are investigating the life of Joseph. And we are discovering that he has a lot of stuck experiences And so we're letting those moments inform us and encourage us in our own stuckness. So last week we got it started by looking at getting stuck with a promise. Stuck with a promise. Uh, Joseph had a couple of dreams and the outcome of those dreams was his like reigning over his family. And so he had a sense of like, God's going to give me an authoritative position over my family. Well, as you can imagine, like the family didn't take that too well. And so his whole dream was put on pause. His promise was put on pause. And we learned the lesson from him that you've got to hold on to God's promises with humility. Because when God promises something, a lot of times it takes a lot of time for that thing to be fulfilled. So you've got to handle God's promises with humility. You've got to step back, give God room to work out those promises, his way, his time, and his strength. Today we're going to talk about this, being stuck with disappointment. Or you could say it this way, stuck in disappointment. We're going to see a period in Joseph's life where there's this repetition, a cycle of betrayal, injustice, and disappointment. Now, whenever you get stuck in or with disappointment, it often comes with a why. A why. Like, why didn't I get the job? 
Why did my dad have to have cancer? Why, why did this person break up with me? Why can't I straighten up and fly right? Why is God letting this happen to me? In the whys of life, when we're encountering disappointment, it's easy to get angry and get bitter. Or maybe we go a different direction and we withdraw. Sometimes people with their faith, they will power down in moments of disappointment and they will withdraw from the Lord. When you find yourself stuck with disappointment, you do something. Today we're going to talk about some fresh things that you might choose to do the next time you feel stuck in disappointment. Now, as we're looking at Joseph's life, there's some things you ought to know. Last week we covered these, but if you weren't with us, you should know these things about Joseph. First of all, he was the youngest of 12 boys in his family. The youngest of 12 boys. His uh, family had a lot of dysfunction. There was a lot of jealousy, a lot of hurt. Uh, Jacob, the father of that family, chose Joseph as his favorite. And like everybody knew it, and they all resented him for it. Jacob gave his son a coat, and that coat somehow gave a significance of this person is in charge. It was like a supervisor's jacket that he would supervise his brother's work. And then finally, we mention his dreams. Joseph's dreams gave his future a sense of promise with leadership over his brothers. Now, as we look at Genesis 37 through 40, uh, this morning. This covers a period of about 12 years in Joseph's life. So this is an extended time, listen, with repeated disappointments. The first one involves his brothers. Now last week we ended the story of Joseph with Jacob sending Joseph out to go check on his brothers. So we pick up in verse 18 of chapter 37. It says, when Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him in the distance. As he approached, they made plans to kill him. The word kill is a word that has a particular order of violence to it. It's, it's a violent slaying. They wanted to violently murder their brother. Some of you watch little crime shows, and sometimes when you're watching one of those, uh, the investigator may make a comment like, this is a really bloody crime scene. Someone took this personal. Like there's a personal degree of violence present in the evidence. That, that's the word for kill. They, they literally wanted to tear their brother apart. Verse 19, here comes the dreamer, they said. Come on, let's kill him. Let's throw him into one of these cisterns. That's a pit or an empty well. We can tell our father a wild animal has eaten him and then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. So when Joseph arrived, his brothers ripped off that beautiful coat he was wearing. They grabbed him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty because there was no water in it. Now as we read through those details, it's easy for us to just kind of skim through it without really feeling the trauma of what's taking place. Like this would be horribly disappointing 
like for your brothers to like throw you in a pit and see to your demise. Verse 25 tells us that when they saw a caravan coming, notice this, they sat down to eat. Look how callous they are. Your brother's in a pit and they're sitting down to have a sandwich. Callous. But then look, a caravan shows up, a caravan of camels in the distance coming toward them. Now, they are camped near a trade route, so it wasn't uncommon for there to be traders moving along that pathway, but the timing is what the scripture writer wants us to see. Like all of a sudden, like at this very moment, there's a caravan that appears. So here again, we see another indicator of the sovereignty of God in play. He's working together with these disappointing details so that something good can come out of that. Look at verse 28. So when the Ishmaelites, who were Midianite traders, came by, Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern and sold him to them for 20 pieces of silver and the traders took him to Egypt. Now, in the next few verses, we read how the brothers covered up their sin against their brother by making it appear like he had been attacked and killed by wild animals. And the outcome of that was just such horrible grief for the father. He was inconsolable. And then we come to the final verse of the chapter where it switches back to Joseph. And says, verse 36, Meanwhile, the Midianite traders arrived in Egypt where they sold Joseph to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Potiphar was captain of the palace guard. So when chapter 37 concludes, there's this cliffhanger ending. Like we know where he is, but we don't know what's going to become of Joseph. This verse kind of reminds me of whenever I was a kid and I would watch a TV show called Batman. Long before there was Christian Bale, Michael Keaton, Ben Affleck playing movie Batman, there was Adam West playing the TV Batman. And episodes would like come to an end with a cliffhanger. It looks something like this. Will Robin escape? Can Batman find him in time? Is this the ghastly end of our dynamic duo? Answers tomorrow night, same time, same channel. One hint, the worst is yet to come. Anybody remember that? There's four of you. 8.30 service, everybody remembered that. That's good. So chapter 37 kind of ends with a cliffhanger, but then we move into chapter 38, which gives us a contrasting view. It's not talking about Joseph anymore, but it's the brothers. And so there's a desire for the scripture writer to let us know what happens with the brothers after their treachery to Joseph. And what we see is how far someone can slip into depravity. 
Like it doesn't tell us everything about every brother. In fact, it only tells us about one brother in one episode, but that is an example of how far life can fall. And so in contrast, we're going to see in chapter 39 how Joseph and the details of his life are being like worked by the Lord so that actually his disappointment is going to work to cause him, listen, to be a better man. Are you aware that God can work even in the disappointments of life to do things that will make us better? And so God uses the disappointment of Joseph to bake out of him some of his immaturity, some of his foolishness, and the big ego that we saw him have earlier in his years. Now, Psalm 105 retells some of Joseph's story. And in its retelling, it makes this comment. It says, until the time to fulfill his dreams, look at this, the Lord tested Joseph's character. The word tested means processed, purified. The Amplified Bible says tested and refined. So God is using the disappointing things that he is going through in order to transform him and make him ready for the rest of his life. Guys, we ought to remember that. That God can take the disappointing events of your life and use them to reshape us and transform us and make us better. Genesis chapter 39. Here's another event that happens. Remember, there's these cycles of betrayal and disappointment. Verse 1, chapter 39. says, when Joseph was taken to Egypt by the Ishmaelite traders... He was purchased by Potiphar, which actually that name has been found in Egyptian inscriptions. So he's a real dude, okay? Potiphar, an Egyptian officer. Potiphar was captain of the guard for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Now, the word officer is interesting because in other places, it's also translated as a eunuch. Now, if you don't know what a eunuch is... That's a man who's had his gear removed. Are we talking here? A king would often take some of the people who worked in the palace, his officials, and have their gear removed so that he could trust those officials around his harem. So possibly Potiphar has had his gear removed, which might help the rest of the story make even more sense. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. The circumstances of his life look like, man, God has abandoned him, but we see the evidence. No, no, no. The Lord is still with him. Verse 3, Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. This pleased Potiphar, so he soon made Joseph his personal attendant. He put him in charge of his entire household and everything he owned. Verse 6, Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man, and Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Come and sleep with me, she demanded, but Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. 
No one here has more authority than I do. He's held nothing back from me except you because you're his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin in God's sight. Now listen, when we see Joseph in his earlier part of life, man, he is incredibly like selfish and egotistical. Look at the transformation that's happening in his life. Like his, his, his heart and his soul is more and more being rooted around the Lord. He's growing. He's changing. He's becoming a better man. Verse 10. She kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day, but he refused. One day, however, no one else was around when he went to do his work. She came and grabbed him by his cloak, demanding, come on, sleep with me. Joseph tore himself away, but he left his cloak in her hand as he ran from the house. I'm wondering if he's starting to question his wardrobe selection. I got to quit wearing coats. Verse 14, she called out to her servants. Soon all the men came running. Look, she said, my husband has brought this Hebrew slave here to make fools of us. He came into my room to rape me, but I screamed. Potiphar was furious when he heard his wife's story about how Joseph had treated her. So he took Joseph and threw him into the prison where the king's prisoners were held. And there he remained. Now, here's what's interesting is that he didn't have him executed immediately, which would have been the custom. Instead, he threw him into the king's prison. There's another way to kind of think about this. This is a white-collar prison. This is kind of a light prison. So perhaps that reveals that maybe Potiphar didn't fully believe his wife's story, but he had to save face so he sent him to prison, verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph in prison, showed him his faithful love, and the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. Before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners and over everything that happened in the prison. Now, Genesis 40, here's the third final little picture that we have of this repeating cycle of betrayal and disappointment. In chapter 40, Joseph is in prison and he meets two former high-ranking officials in Pharaoh's palace. And they were responsible for safeguarding the king in at least a couple of ways that an assassin could strike him. So they had to be trustworthy and they also had to be a good judge of character as they built palace staff to serve the Pharaoh. Now, we don't know why they are in prison. It seems to be that they're being held while there's some investigation into their life and potential criminal activity. But while they're in prison, they have dreams. And their dreams have haunting details. And Joseph volunteers to try to help them untangle their dreams to see if they can figure out what they mean. And in both cases, it gave them a read on what was about to happen to them. One of them would be investigated and cleared of charges and restored to his position. The other one would be found guilty and executed. 
Now, with the one who's restored to his position, the Bible tells us that Joseph makes an emotional appeal to him. Look at verse 14 of Genesis 40. Please remember me and do me a favor when things go well for you. Mention me to Pharaoh so he might let me out of this place, for I was kidnapped from my homeland, the land of the Hebrews, and now I'm here in prison, but I did nothing to deserve it. Now, as the chapter closes, we get this very solemn description of what happens next when that person goes back to the palace and they get restored to their position. Here's what the Bible tells us at the end of the chapter. He forgot about Joseph, never giving him another thought. And you can kind of feel the drama of that moment, like the the door is closing and his fate is sealed and he is stuck with disappointment. Now, the next time you feel like you're stuck in disappointment, I want us to glean some things out of this story that might help you activate and, and act in a way that will be more helpful to you in your disappointment. Here's one thing that you should learn to do, and that is to ask God for help when you feel disappointed. Ask God for help. You say, well, that's so obvious. Is it? Because sometimes when we're disappointed, we'll blame God, but we don't want to talk to him. So when you feel disappointment, you have to, you have to convince yourself, I, I've got to ask God for help. Now, later in Genesis, when Joseph's brothers are recounting the event when they threw him into the pit, they say this, that their brother Joseph pleaded with them for help. Now notice he pleaded to his brothers, but there's nothing written that tells us that he asked God for help. Now, it's, it's not a bad thing to ask someone that you think can help you whenever you're in a jam, but there's nobody that can help you like the Lord. And you've got to learn how to ask God for help whenever you feel all the pressures and temptations of disappointment. Now you say, yeah, 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 but I got myself in it. I got to get myself out. I don't want to pray any jailhouse prayers as if those are offensive. Like, it doesn't offend God for you to pray some jailhouse prayers, some prayers of desperation. What offends God if you don't ask him? Isaiah chapter 65, verse 1, I was ready. This is the Lord talking. I was ready to respond, but no one asked for help. When you experience and feel disappointment, you've got to tell yourself, I need to ask the Lord for help. One of my first ministry assignments was being an intern in a church. And one of the staff members that I learned to love and tried to spend time with and learn from was an older gentleman who was a, a pastoral care pastor, an outreach pastor. And he was a former sailor. Everybody say sailor. Because that's kind of important to the story. Retired Navy guy. 
Now, I've I've told you some things about Brother Jake before because he really made a mark on my life. But we were having a season where we were doing this evangelistic campaign as a church. And we didn't see the Lord opening any doors for people to be saved. And it brought a great frustration for all the effort being made. We just weren't seeing any fruit from it. And so the pastor said, let's have a midnight prayer meeting. So we all came back to the church. We prayed at midnight. I was standing beside Brother Jake, who, remember, is a sailor, right? Retired Navy guy. He's standing next to me. And when the pastor asked for people to pray, Jake spoke up and he prayed. And here's what he prayed. God, will you kick the hell out of the devil? I'd never heard anybody cuss in their prayer. But, but remember, what is he? He's a sailor. And those are words that he had used at other seasons in his life. And he sensed the urgency of the moment and knew we were in a place when we needed God's help. And he just honestly and transparently cried out to the Lord, God help. And he did. We, we started to see that situation pivot and, and hearts come open. Now, I don't think the key to the hearts being open was the cousin in the prayer. I think it was just the prayer. But it illustrates the fact that when you feel disappointed, can you just open your heart to the Lord and honestly ask him for help? Number two, we've got a stick with what we know about God in disappointing times. You gotta stick with what you know about God in disappointing times. Please notice that Joseph doesn't abandon like one of his core beliefs about the Lord that God is present just because it seemed like he was far away. So when the whole thing goes down with Potiphar's wife, he's like, I can't do that because God is here, God is present, and I'm not going to offend, I'm not going to sin against God. He didn't change his beliefs because of what he was going through. He stuck with what he knew about God. Let me tell you why that's important. Because when you are in a disappointing season, you're going to be tempted to change your beliefs based upon what's happening in the moment. But hear me, and this, you might ought to write this down. We don't form our theology in our pain. We let our theology inform our pain. When we're stuck, we stick with what we already know about God, that God is faithful, that God is good, that God is loving, that God is able, that God is caring, that God is wise, and God is working in our disappointing seasons to bring everything together for good. Stick with what you know. Here's a third one. You got to shift focus from self to others. It's easy whenever you're in a disappointing season to throw yourself a pity party. But notice Joseph doesn't have any pity parties in Potiphar's house or in prison. In fact, he leverages the moment to have an opportunity to do something for someone else, help somebody else figure out their dreams. Listen to this. We'll all get more forward traction in our stuck moments 
when we help someone else. It's one of the things I so admire about my friend Tim Siegel. Many of you know his story. You have followed it through the years. And you were aware of when his son had a terrible accident, suffered a brain injury, that challenged him for the rest of his life. COVID rolled around and because of some of the complications with his body and he, he died. And the pain of that, the grief of that has been so significant. And Tim has felt it. And at times, like Jacob's father, or, or Joseph's father, Jacob, is inconsolable because the grief is so heavy. And yet has chosen in the midst of his grief to prioritize trying to help others. To help other people and other families that go through traumatic brain injuries. To move towards other people that are walking through their seasons of grief. I'm so thrilled on December the 4th, on that Sunday morning, we're going to have Tim signing his new book out in the lobby where he details some of this next chapter of his grief season as his faith has been informing like his heart and soul and mind and journey. You, you've got to help others if you want to see traction and move forward out of disappointment. Here's the fourth and final one, and that is learning to embrace Jesus in the mystery. Embrace Jesus in the mystery. There's no reason for us to assume from anything that we've read that Joseph gave up on God. There's a lot of silence about that, but there's no, there's no reason for us to assume that he, he quit on the Lord. And when we read his story, we certainly will see as the coming weeks will show, like God never gave up on him. God was committed and stayed with him. And so, listen, when you're in disappointing times, there's parts of it you'll, you're never going to figure out. You'll, you'll never fully understand. But you can still embrace Jesus in the mystery. There's a, a book called The Midrash. And it's an ancient commentary where Jewish rabbis make observations about Old Testament stories. And at the end of chapter 40, as it talks about the man restored to his position, forgot about Joseph, the Midrash reads this. You, referring to that person, you may have forgotten him. But I, the Lord, have not. God has not forgotten you in your season or your moment of disappointment. In fact, God is with you in the fire of your disappointment. Another Old Testament story about three boys who got thrown into a fiery furnace. Remember that one? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And those who were looking on said, wait a minute, one, two, three. There, there's a fourth one in the flames. 
and it looks like the Son of God. And that story reminds us that when you're in the fires of life, when you're in the disappointing seasons of life, you may think you're alone, but you are not. Jesus is with you. Learn to embrace Jesus in the mystery. You can't explain it. You can't understand it. You're not really sure of where this thing is going, but he's with you. Embrace him.